0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. The immune system is fantastic when it works well and terrible when it doesn't. In this episode of The Health Report, we canvas new frontiers of knowledge in the immune system from infancy through to adulthood and problems like allergy and cancer. The programme is based on a panel which we recorded at the World Science Festival back in March, and the panel included cancer biologist Nigel McMillan from the Menzies Health Institute in Queensland, Katie Allen, who was at the time a paediatric allergist from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, who has since become a member of Parliament for the seat of Higgins in Victoria, and Mark Smith, who is a senior scientist and immunology coordinator at QIMR Berghofer Research Institute. And he starts with a primer in immunology. So get your notepads out and we will question you later, (laughs) multi-choice questions as we go through. So Mark, take us through an initial primer on the immune system.
2: Okay, well, most of you are probably familiar with the immune system from having a bit of an understanding about your blood particularly, and that contains a group of cells. You know you've got red cells, and which colours the blood, and you have white cells. So the immune cells basically sit in that white cell fraction. Perhaps what you don't know so much about is that the immune cells actually originally develop in your bones in a place called the bone marrow. So they have a very specific niche there that they develop in, and they develop in all kinds of different what we call lineages or types of cells. They do their initial developing there and then they get seeded out into the periphery, into the different organs. And the immune system's interesting. A lot of people don't realise that the biggest immune organs that we have are our skin and also our gastrointestinal tracts. I think there's been some survey done about how much immune system we've got in the gastrointestinal tract, it's an enormous amount, many, many tennis courts worth of surface area of the immune system. And
1: people think of the
2: gastrointestinal
1: tract as inside your body. It's actually outside your body. It's an external surface. It just happens to be a tube inside your body. That's
2: exactly right. So those particular immune organs, of course, are exposed to all the potential antigens, food antigens, and also and just to uh, define our terms here. So an antigen yes. is something that provokes an immune response? That's right. An antigen foreign is something that, that is seen basically as foreign by the immune system. So when we think about the immune system fighting things like viruses and bacteria, these uh, organisms are foreign to ourselves. So in the development of the immune system, there's a selection process, particularly cells of what are called the adaptive immune system are selected to particularly see what is foreign they become tolerant to what is self or normal. So that's a very important process. That sort of sets your threshold for life in terms of what you can see. So it doesn't attack yourself, it's designed to attack foreign. To attack foreign, that's right. When we're talking about immune cells though, there's two basic types really, to break it down very simply. There's a group of cells which act very early in an immune response, and they're very primitive cells. Virtually all organisms have those cells, going right down to things like snails and they have the same types of cells that we do. And we can talk a bit more about those types of cells. I work on one of those groups of cells called natural killer cells. Nigel will talk a little bit about macrophages and myeloid cells. So these are the early responding cells, and they basically fall into two categories. They're killer cells or they eat things. And their job is to really deal with something very early on. Now, the eating is all about basically transferring information to the next part of the immune system, which is the adaptive. So they, they eat, they take in the information and then they present it to these cells that have got great specificity. The killer cells obviously just kill and try to eliminate and remove the virus or the bacteria or the fungus or whatever it is. After that innate phase, that innate phase is very critical for your protection in the first few days of when you get infected with something. But then you move to what's called the adaptive system, and that's where the cells that I was talking about, like T cells, are educated and B cells. So T cells essentially see little pieces of proteins that are foreign and presented on the surface of other immune cells, and those T cells can do all sorts of different things, and we'll talk about that. And they form what we call memory. The other type of cells that we have are B cells, and they make things called antibodies, which are essentially structures that recognise foreign things, combine them, and then other cells attach to that and destroy those. And those antibodies also have specificity and we also have memory. So when we get vaccinated with, you know, the initial vaccines we have in our life, um, it's basically the B cells making antibodies that are giving us lifelong protection against those types of challenges.
0: So, Mark, it's a bit like an army, isn't it? So you have the the rapid the rapid response part of the army, which is the ones that come out with bows and arrows, and then you've got the next adaptive ones, which come out with the more sophisticated machinery. That's right. And. Yeah the difference between the cells are what's on the outside of them because those cells have little, like, T-shirts telling which army or which types of military information they can use and not use and which ones they can attack and which they can't attack.
2: That's right, So it's like a
0: code, isn't it?
1: So when it comes to... Katie, when it comes to... Growing up with your immune system, your immune system gets trained, doesn't yeah,
0: it? Yeah, yeah, it gets trained, particularly in that first year of life. It's a very important time. And as Mark said before, the uh, ex- first exposures that you get are either through the skin, through the airway, or through the gut. And so your system has to be ready, and it starts off with the first line of attack, which is that innate immune system. And then there's this adaption, the adaptive immune system, which is the more sophisticated part of the immune system. It's very complex, and in fact, immunologists, and I'm not one of those, will argue about the specifics of what one part of the immune system. But it's very, very hard to understand the complexity of all the immune systems. And I often think we should have a video game around it. Because if you could have young people with smart minds sitting down, and trying, they can all recognise. When you watch my kids play on video games, they know the interactions that you can and can't have. And the immune system is like that. It knows the codes and the rules. And we're trying to work out the jigsaw puzzle around that.
1: So what, because people say that allergy is the result of poor immune training. What what do we know about that?
0: Uh, So so allergy is um, in particular, one part of the adaptive immune system. We think the innate immune system has an important role to play in setting up the problem, but the adaptive immune system that goes wrong is what we call the IgE-mediated antibody system. And the IgE system... So this is
1: the chemicals that float around in your blood rather than are attached Uh, to white cells. So what happens
0: is there are cells that um, have IgEs attached to the outside of them, and then when
1: Immunoglobulin. Immunoglobulin,
0: called. yeah. And then what happens is, and you can see it's a little bit like having a grenade, and what happens is comes along is something like a food attaches two parts of the spikes and, and causes that cell to detonate, and out of those cells come chemicals such as histamine, and many of you will have heard of antihistamines. So those histamines causes reactions in your body that make you itch or swell or have anaphylaxis.
1: So is it true that the part of the immune system that goes rogue with
0: allergies is the one that was designed to fight parasites in, that's in absolut- ancient times? That's absolutely correct. And that's why we think it's something to do with the modern lifestyle.
1: And what goes wrong when we, you get autoimmune disease? What do we know about the, the lack of ability to recognise self? I realise I might be taking you out of your comfort zone here. You're taking
3: me. Yeah, it's completely out of my, no. Thank uh, so, so I No. Mean, Back to
1: your honours. You know. <laughs> yeah.
3: but, but so in, in an autoimmunity, the, the problem is our cells have to learn what to look for. And it's really important that this occurs early in life. But our immune system will sometimes make a mistake. And it will start going a bit rogue. So we have cells that have very specific identities. All our cells are known to ourselves. That's why you can't take a blood transfusion from one type of person to another if it's not matched immunologically, because they will reject it. We know what our self is. But sometimes our immune system makes a mistake. And it'll start recognizing, say, um, in the case of MS, part of our sheathing on our nerve cells, it starts making antibodies and it starts making T-cells, cells cells that will break them up against ourself. And of course, this is an enormous problem because we have memory there, it keeps on going, and treating those is basically a matter of turning our immune system down with drugs like
1: steroids and the like, and that has its own problems as well. So, you know, first hunter-gatherers, and we (coughs) evolved into Homo sapiens, infection was our biggest problem. Talk us through how we fight infection. So we've all probably
3: suffered from influenza virus or one of the many viruses that that cause the common cold, rhinoviruses, for example. So the first thing that happens is this virus gets in our nasal passages and gets into our lungs. And the first thing that we'll actually encounter will be one of these sort of guardian cells. Think of this as a castle siege. These are the lookouts outside the castle looking to see for invaders, these macrophages. Macrophages are very good because it recognises molecules on those bacteria, and it eats them. It takes them in and it eliminates them. Now, macrophages, we have a a whole set of macrophages in our lungs, we call them alveolar macrophages. They're really good at bacteria. They're not so good at getting viruses so much. But we then have another line of defence. So think of the castle. We have lookouts outside the castle. If they start sieging the castle walls, our castle is lined with people who signal inside the castle that we're under attack from a virus. And it releases a pigeons to go and send help to other castles to bring help. And we call these cytokines. Now, there's one particular amazing one. The name of it is interferon. It doesn't really particularly matter. But interferon is an amazing signaling molecule. It turns a 1,000 new genes on in your cell. And they are to fight that virus. It also goes off and signals other cells next door to say, look out, viruses are around. If I was to inject you with interferon, you would feel like you had the flu, <laughs> aching joints, temperature, sweats, chills,
1: etc. Which is in fact what they used to do for hepatitis and don't do anymore because of all yeah. the side effects.
3: So basically, when you're treating patients for hepatitis, you, uh, you gave them flu for six months, which was fairly depressing uh, for sure. <laughs> Luckily, we have really good new therapies for hepatitis. So this is this innate immune system Mark was talking about that doesn't improve over time. It just tries to slow the virus down. But the virus eventually—viruses are really sneaky. they got so many ways of subverting our immune system. Every virus that's alive today is here because it's worked out how to get around the immune system. So I tell my students, your job's easy. It's all done. You just have to find out how it works.
1: Now, we, talk, we throw the word inflammation around a lot. I mean, everybody in this audience has used the word inflammation. You know, they've got redness on their skin, and part a rash. But it's got a very specific immune meaning. What, what is inflammation?
3: So inflammation is the activation of these immune cells. So these chemical, uh, another set of chemical signals are released and we get activation of cells like we call them mast cells and the like. It essentially brings a whole lot of new players to the site. And you look at where you might have a bacterial infection on your skin, it goes all red. You know, that's because there's a whole lot of new players coming in. These macrophages, these neutrophils, and then eventually these smart cells. I would call these like the secret police. They're the really smart uh, cells that kill off uh, bacteria or eventually these CD8 and CD4 cells. And that inflammation is just reflective of a really great immune system, but of course sometimes it goes wrong.
1: And inflammation is part of allergy.
0: Yes, yes. So, I mean, in fact, we call it inflammation, but because traditionally, as you said, people think of inflammation, they can see redness and swelling and pain. But inflammation is, in theory, recruitment of immune cells to try and solve a problem. And in the case of allergy, the problem is a misfiring. There's been an alarm that's been set up, then the body's just got confused about what the the actual signal is.
1: You're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, and a panel on the immune system recorded at the World Science Festival in Brisbane. So transition us now to cancer. What's the cancer story in all this? Because when I was at medical school, we were told that the immune system didn't have anything to do with cancer whatsoever.
2: It was just irrelevant, some mad idea. I was exactly in the same boat. So there's a very famous Australian immunologist, actually, Macfarlane Burnett, who is known for what's called the clonal selection theory, which is to do with B cells. but A lot of people don't realise he actually also proposed another theory called the cancer immune surveillance hypothesis back in 1957. And that hypothesis is basically that your immune system goes around and recognises anything that is transformed or different or not normal. And there are lymphocytes in your body, T-cells, he was thinking about. T-cells were just being discovered in his institute at that time. They go around and they roam around. And we've got some pictures there just showing you some surveillance on the screen Small lymphocytes surveilling tissue and looking for cells that are rogue. And essentially, the process is to potentially eliminate those cells so that those cells never become a problem. So, when cells become cancerous, it always starts at a single cell level. So, if you can get rid of that cell in the first instance, the cancer will never develop. So, when we think about what's evolved in terms of our understanding of cancer and the immune system, is that The current theory is that there are three phases. You have what we call elimination, as I've just described, where nothing ever eventuates. Your immune system acts effectively, removes those dangerous cells. We have a phase called equilibrium, where cells start to avoid those all sorts of different controls on them. Intrinsic controls, but also immune system controls. So and they're, they're, they're starting to behave like bacteria do to resist the immune system. And cancers are genomic, what we call genomically unstable. So their chromosomes are very unsettled. They can mutate very quickly. So they start to develop resistance, if you like, to the immune system. The immune system at the same time is trying to get rid of that. And there's a selection process that goes on. Not surprisingly, sometimes that long battle, and that can actually go on, we've shown it in experimental animals, it goes on for the length of an experimental animal's life. In humans, this could be happening in people for decades potentially. Mm. Nothing eventuates, but then you get what we call escape, where the tumour essentially develops a strategy where it can overcome the immune system, a clone of that particular tumour, and it grows out, and that's what we see in the clinic. So when someone comes to the doctor and they've got a lump or some sort of issue with one of their organs and we find a mass, that's actually a pretty late stage of Mm. events, really. The immune system has had a history with that cancer, perhaps for many years, depending on how malignant or tumorogenic that cancer is. And
0: clinically, there's been a real change in the way people are thinking about cancer and that we now have some really exciting new therapies coming online, monoclonal antibodies and immunotherapy. But people talk about, in the future, we'll be living with not just one but several cancers and how we manage those because there'll be this whole sort of balance between fighting a cancer and not fighting a cancer rather than you get a cancer and then, it's, then you die sort of thing. So there's been a real switch, hasn't there, in the last 10 years about a hopeful outcome but that we are trying to balance our immune system and surveillance yeah, with cancers as yeah, yeah, that's emerging. right. I
2: mean, wh- what I was talking about is really the fundamentals of your natural immune reaction with cancer. But what we've understood is that, uh, the, as I said, the cancers have these escape mechanisms. Now, these escape mechanisms are also points at which we can intervene and perhaps get the immune system to deal with these escape mechanisms. And so, one of the mechanisms, for example, is that the T cells that go in there, they have molecules on their surface called checkpoints. They're like brakes, And they're essentially molecules on there to stop T cells from rampantly going around your body and destroying your normal tissue. So that's there for a good reason. That's to stop you having autoimmune reaction. But the cancer kind of hijacks that process and uses that particular checkpoint on those T cells and interferes with that process what we've understood is that if we put in an antibody then that actually blocks that interaction, it's like a double negative. You essentially activate, you take the brakes off and you activate those T cells. So those T cells that were rendered inert by the cancer are sort of reactivated and revigorated. And that's where the breakthroughs come in the last few years, that understanding of how the immune system works in that regard and applying technology to develop agents that interfere at that level. We're talking about the first approval of one of those agents was in 2011. And a Nobel Prize last year. Nobel Prize last year for the inventors of, well, discoverers of the checkpoint process, really. And, you know, therapies that are being rolled out in multiple cancers now, and a reality check, we're not curing everybody, but we're prolonging the life of Mm. a large number of patients in some particular cancers like melanoma or skin cancer, making a tremendous difference. But the interesting thing about the immune system is that it's agnostic to the cancer type. Immune cell can go in and destroy all different kinds of cancers. So traditionally, therapy has been applied in the the sense directly against the cancer cells. Chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, which is still the most effective type of therapy, that's all designed to get rid of the cancer intrinsically. Whereas the immune therapies are designed to work on your normal immune system, the normal host, if you like, and um, make those cells attack, liberate those cells to attack the tumour. With
3: with all our chemos, radiation, et cetera, et cetera, and and they've cured many people of cancer, but is it those that are curing it or is it really that they're debulking the tumours and the immune system is always ultimately required for a cure of cancer? Well, that's
2: a really good point. I mean, a lot of people have studied particularly radiotherapy and some types of chemotherapy actually do work through the immune system. So. Experiments have been done to take out elements of the immune system and apply these types of therapies, and they largely don't work Mm. without the immune system. And the
0: the other layer is actually genetics as well, isn't it? And as we move forward, we'll get more personalised based on the codebook you have for the type of cells you might be producing as well, or the response that you've got to those. That's right. There's
2: an amazing intersection at the moment occurring between the gen- genomics, so you would all know that the human genome was was basically mapped out. It was a you know billion dollar project um, around 2000, mm. and uh, one genome. And uh, now we can sequence people's genomes in
0: $200, hours, yeah.
2: basically for hundreds of dollars. Mm. So um, what Katie's talking about in terms of personalised medicine is your cancer, your particular cancer is unique. Because it's mutated, it actually makes foreign proteins that mm. your body sees as foreign. But and gene testing
1: is not very useful in immunotherapy, from what I gather. It doesn't necessarily predict whether you're going to respond to it.
2: it it's starting to. So there's a thing called tumour mutational burden, right, which is a mm. So very how rapidly your tumour is changing. Mm. A, it's, a, it's a broad term, but it basically assesses the level of mutation you've got in your cancer. So to use an example, people who have melanoma with UV exposure, particularly, causes a lot of mutation in the skin, and those people respond very well to immunotherapy. Very strange paradox. People who smoke that have lung cancer do better on immunotherapy mm-hmm. than non-smokers, and it's because the carcinogens in the cigarettes cause more mutation in their cancers and makes those cancers so more susceptible. A, a
1: nastier tumour
2: is more exposed to the immune system? That's right, Mm -hmm. Mm they're more heavily mutated. And so this tumour mutational burden now is being used as a predictor with other things to try and predict who's going to respond to immunotherapy and who who is
1: Regardless of the tumour in your body. Mm. So where do viruses fit into it? Because one of the early biological studies of cancer was known viruses that cause cancer. So we know that
3: infectious organisms cause one third of all cancers. So the most common is uh, Helobacter, which some of course discovered in the Nobel Prize in Australia for that work, but it causes stomach cancer. HPV, the human papillomavirus, sort of pretty famous in Brisbane, was the, of the vaccine that was developed here, causes about 5% of the world's cancer burden. And so Hepatitis. all of these cancers though are a mistake, because all viruses want to do in their entire life is make more virus. And when an HPV virus gets into a cell, it accidentally gets caught up in the genome and it makes no more virus. So it's a mistake by the virus. The consequence, unfortunately, is that over a long period of time, with more mutations, it forms cancers. So skin cancers, head and neck cancers, cervical cancer. But of course, because it's caused by a foreign organism, it makes signals that the immune system should see. Generally, the immune system doesn't see those very well. And all the therapies we've tried to try and treat patients after they've got the cancer (coughs) the immune therapies to date haven't been very successful. But we know if we immunise beforehand, the virus will never cause the cancer.
1: Katie, just talk about some of the research you've been doing at the Murdoch and how that's illuminating the causes of allergy in children, and babies and children, and how to prevent it?
0: The research we've been doing is really trying to understand why something like this has happened so quickly and why it's happening in the developed world. And when we talk about viruses or cancer, they've been around since time immemorial. But food allergy literally, in what we think has happened, is really in the last couple of decades, two or three decades. And so as again, as a medical researcher, to be able to identify what has caused something that's happened so quickly and in such large numbers as a public health threat, to be able to turn that around and turn off that epidemic is very tantalising. And we do think we've discovered uh, some of the ins into that. Such as? Well, I call it the five Ds. I actually went and I gave a talk once to an elderly population and I talked about the five Ds and I went through them. And at the end, one of the old Ds said to me, now, with regards to the three Ds, and I thought, <laughs> you can't keep it very simple, can you? Uh, but uh, again, it's very long-winded, but the five Ds, I, I You've say... You've forgotten
1: about the dementia Ds. <laughs> LAUGHTER
0: Exactly. Uh, So the the five Ds we talk about are uh, diet and dry skin, which is eczema increases your risk because your skin is, is dry and it probably increases the alarm of the immune system to being exposed to certain foods. The second D is diet. And so we know that delaying the introduction of certain foods into baby's diet in the first year of life is increasing the food allergy epidemic. Don't delay introducing foods we used to think might be dangerous such as peanut butter, cow's milk, egg and wheat um, and to introduce them in the first year of life after solids have commenced. Okay. Um,
3: I have a three-month-old grandchild. What should I be doing? I'm always what should I be the telling her mother her to do?
0: That's right. So don't Shovel be trying to everything. It. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> around my six own month, eating habit. We, we say around six months and not before four months is when to introduce solids and that's because we want the World Health Organisation to agree with the allergy well, You actually believe that, do you? I do. You and I have had this long discussion about this. Actually, Norman came and think helped it us. You should be earlier. No, well, we are actually looking at whether we should be going back to what Grandma used to do. But certainly don't need to delay them any longer. And and of course, we want people to continue breastfeeding. And, and that's one of the big political issues, is that breast is best, and for all sorts of reasons. And people but there's have not been much
1: evidence that introducing solids earlier affects that. breastfeeding. That's right, it's absolutely. Yeah.
0: And the issue is really around the developing countries where formula companies were aggressive and Introducing formula too early, and that water that was associated with the developing countries where the water was dirty was killing children. So we really do need to make sure that we're uh, not getting vested interests too much involved. But
1: okay, so your immune system is not covered. Got to three. Sorry, we've got two more. Two more. My dementia, right?
0: Oh, I've got six. So we've got diet and dry skin. Sorry, the first two. The next two are um, dogs and dribble. We call it, and that's the hygiene hypothesis. And so we know that something to do with the microbial exposure is important. So we've talked a lot about the immune system, but the other aspect of the immune system that's involved in training is the microbiome that we carry on our skin, in our nose, in our airways, and in our gut. So there are more microbes or or bugs in our gut than there are people on this planet. And so some wise gastroenterologists said, we are basically a bag of bugs carrying around a body. <laughs> so our microbiome in our gut is a very important role to play in training, particularly the innate immune system, that first offender. And the same with the microbiome on the skin. So we're starting to understand more about that with time. We know that having siblings and having dogs protects against food allergy. We just don't know what aspect of it is. And then the fifth one is vitamin D. So we think vitamin D is a very important sunshine hormone to keep people healthy. You can actually ingest it. You don't have to have sunlight. So so in Australia, that fifth so this one... is
1: in children or in the pregnant woman?
0: Probably in both. We do know that we have changing rates of vitamin D deficiency in, in Australia. And when I travel internationally, people say, Australia's a sunny country, why do you have problems? So but why are the last country. this? Because it's it actually just like we talked before about interferon, you know, vitamin D actually gets inside the nucleus and affects more than 200 genes. So it's very important for the immune system. So we're actually doing a big study now of 3,000 infants called Vitality to look at immune health in the first year of life, particularly with regards to a, a randomised control trial of vitamin D drops versus no vitamin D drops in the first year of life because in the Northern Hemisphere, all babies are recommended to have drops, but also all of the dairy products are fortified. So, we're the last country to really do that, and we'd like to understand whether we need to do it or not to do it.
1: And how does all this translate into treatment, if you've already got an allergy? How does this translate? So,
0: treatment is, that's, in, again, a very exciting phase of medicine at the moment. So, um, because Australia has the highest burden of food allergy in the world, unfortunately. We do say we're the food allergy capital of the world. I'd like us to be the food capital of the world rather than the food allergy capital of the world. But we do know that we've had a very, very rapid response, both by our clinical Fraternity and also the research fraternity. And we've been, the Australian Centre of Food and Allergy Research has been really leading the way with regards to new treatments using oral immunotherapy to treat children, particularly with peanut allergy, and we'd like to now move on to other areas like cows. Milk so this is egg.
1: giving small doses of peanuts to so it's about train the immune system. So about training the immune system. The
0: immune system. And, and Professor Mimi Tang, who I work with at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, has a groundbreaking new therapy that's in trial at the moment, which is taking probiotics, which are a good form of bacteria, linking it to the uh, small amount of increasing dose of peanut butter, or it's actually a, a peanut flour, and uh, that's called a pea poet therapy. Bringing those two aspects of those 5D, the bacteria, with the exposure, so diet and the hygiene hypothesis together, to try and you know kickstart the immune system to tolerate the food.
1: Can you please join me in thanking our fantastic Nigel McMillan from the Menzies Health Institute, Queensland. Kitty Allen from MCRI and Mark Smith from QIMR Berghofer were on our panel there. And that's it for The Health Report and me, Norman Swan, for this week. See you next time.